The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Good morning. So I think it was last year when I told you a little secret. Whenever you see Pastor Tony sitting on the chair, you know something happened during the week. Something happened when I was playing. I broke my ribs for the third time. Um, So my wife's not very happy with me. The doctor said six weeks. My wife said never again. My kids are laughing at me. Uh, However, uh, God really, I did something miraculous last night. This lady prayed over me last night, and I can't, my jaws drop because right now, out of a pain level of maybe yesterday was an eight, you know how you, if you've ever broken ribs, you sit in the car and you're like, oh no, you got to sit, you have to cough, you have to do something. My level is at a two right now. It's unbelievable. But because I'm 50, I am going to still sit down. And that's why this is the way it is, okay? So, six weeks, this is the first week out of six that we get the privilege of going through a book of the Bible together this summer. We, we typically do that. Uh, we, we go through books of the Bible over the summer. Ephesians is the book, one of my favorite books. In fact, one of my favorite uh, Bible verses in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, and 10. By grace, through faith, not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works. It's a great Great book, great truths in it. And so we're going to talk about that because really it's not just a book of the Bible, but it's also a letter. It's a letter by the Apostle Paul who writes this 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So there are eyewitnesses to this event, the death and resurrection of Jesus, still around. And and Paul is writing this letter to new Christians in this this, uh, city of Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. He's in Rome under house arrest while he's writing this letter uh, to the, the Ephesians. And so Ephesus, in this place, it was really a big city uh, in, in, ancient, in the ancient world. It was right along up there with Rome, with Corinth, with Alexandria. In fact, in, in the city of Ephesus, there was this great big temple to a Roman goddess named Diana. In the Greek, it was Artemis. And Paul went round and round with people there. And almost a mob tried to kill him, actually. He stayed in Ephesus longer than any place, any other place that he stayed in his missionary journeys, three years Paul did. And so uh, this is uh, this temple that's still standing. At least the pillars are today in, in that city. But as Paul writes these letters, he, he writes in a way that there's a format to his letters. First part of the book really is Christian doctrine. Doctrine is, just means teaching. So there's Christian teaching, biblical teaching about Jesus and what he's done for us to, that impacts our faith and our life. So if we have sound doctrine then it's a great pattern for our faith and how we love one another as Christians, Christian doctrine. And then after that, then he says, well, how does that impact your Christian life? 
The doctrinal points you'll find in the book of Ephesians, there's faith, there's baptism, there's reconciliation, there's predestination. That's what we're going to talk about today. Then it flows into Christian life. We talk about wives, husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, the unity of the body in the church. Those are the kinds of things that St. Paul is talking about, doctrine, and then how that plays out in, in our faith life. And so we're going to dig right in, Ephesians chapter 1, open up your Bibles if you brought them. If you haven't, we have some provided. Ephesians 1, found on page 1,817. And as you're going there, believe it or not, the first 12 verses of the book are one gigantically long sentence. So this, this Pharisee of Pharisees, I don't think was paying too close attention in Jewish school where the teacher's trying to say, hey, we want to try to uh, avoid these run-on sentences. Well, that didn't happen. Ephesians chapter 1, the first 12 verses, one long sentence, but really the book can be summarized this way. I put up on the screen, God has a plan for the world that he put into place from eternity. It's carried out by Jesus and that promises unimaginable blessings for believers. That's Ephesians chapter 1. We can go home now. No, we have a lot more to cover. We're going to have God's word speak to us. And as he speaks to us, God's word, I pray that the Spirit, and I trust that the Spirit will also transform us. Amen? Amen. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints. Did you catch that? To the saints. These are living ones. These are ones set apart by God, alive people called out, made holy by God. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through the blood, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. I'm losing my breath. Oh, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Wow. Wow. I mean, that, that, that's unbelievable. He writes the grace and pleasure and will and lavished, predestined, chosen, 
All these words he repeats over and over again, and there's a reason for that. And what's the doctrinal piece that we're going to talk about today? The doctrine, this body of teaching about Jesus and God and what he's done? Well, it's predestination, found in verses 4 and 5 and 11. Chose us, predestined us. Verse 11, two words, chosen, predestined. So what's predestination? Predestination, a simple definition before the world existed. Before the world existed, God chose certain people to come to faith in Jesus and be saved. Some Bible scholars call that election. The Bible talks about predestination in many places. And one of them, it's found in the book of Romans, chapter 8. It's on the screen for you. Verses 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Moreover, those whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. You see that I highlighted two words for you on that, foreknew and predestined, because I want to do a little clarification for you as we talk about this word predestination. Predestination is not foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge is a character, a quality of God that he knows everything before it happens. He knows in advance what's going to happen to Christians and non-Christians, both good and evil, he just knows. But God's foreknowledge is different than predestination. That's a different thing. Predestination is this. It's an act of God, an act of God long ago before time began, which not only did God foreknow, but actually he chose some. There's an action of God to be saved. When God predestined us, he not only knew that we would be saved, but he caused everything to happen in such a way that it was his choice in Christ for us to be saved. If you are a baptized believer of Jesus, you are predestined, and that should give us some comfort and some good news today. And that's what we want to talk about. Now, predestination doesn't mean that God charted out every little detail of our lives and we're like programmed robots to just obey him. That's not what it means. When the Bible talks about predestination, the Bible always associates it with salvation. Predestination and salvation. So God has predestined not every detail of our lives, but he's predestined our eternal salvation and everything that pertains to it. Well, what does everything that pertains to it mean? Well, I have five things that it means. Number one, that Christ would shed his blood as a ransom for the sins of the world. That God would send his own son because he loved the world so much that this is what Jesus would do for our salvation. That he would send, that he would die on a cross for us. That God the Father did that. Number two, that we would actually be called at our baptism by the power of the word and simple water that we would be called out to be holy and justified by the gospel, and given us faith that's a gift. Not only are we given faith, but we are also given the gift of repentance to say, God, I am sorry for when I mess up, for when I know I sinned against you and against others, I'm sorry. He does that for us, that ability, so that when we come to church, when we hear his word at a Bible study, when we're in prayer together as, as people, when we receive Holy Communion, when we remember that we're a baptized child of God, God helps us to understand, to be preserved in the faith. Not just to be preserved, but actually to persevere in the faith as well. And number five, that someday we would actually be glorified with him to have new bodies and new minds 
And it's awesome. God did all these things. And they're all wonderful things that he did. And that's all part of what predestination is. So this teaching is one that is supposed to be comforting for all Christians. But guess what? In our sinfulness and in our human nature, sometimes we say, wait a minute. That's really not comforting. Because a lot of times as Christians, we misunderstand it and our faith becomes unsettled. Like you heard the song that Steve was singing, we have doubts. What kind of doubts? Well, how do I know I'm chosen? If God chose me, then why didn't he choose this guy? I mean, did he also choose some to be damned then? That if he chose me before the creation of the world, did he also choose others? Well, what I'm talking about is double predestination where we believe as Lutheran Christians that that is not supported in the Bible that God actually chooses some to be damned. And so the question comes up, well, why some then and not others, God? And we we begin to question the character of God. And then pastors and theologians try to explain by reason, well, this is why. I mean, if any pastor can tell you you know, and answer that question, why are some saved and not others, and they have an answer for that? Run. Okay? Really. Don't listen. Why? Because some people, they, they do two things, okay? They try to explain it this way. Well, I know why. It's because of man's free will. I mean, you have to choose to be saved. And the Bible doesn't say that. We, as, as Christians in this place, we reject that as unscriptural because you'll find out in Ephesians 2, the Bible clearly says we are dead in our trespasses and sin. How can a dead man do anything? No, God has to choose us to be saved. And the Holy Spirit, with the gospel, gives us that gift of faith. And then other people say, well, no, it's not because um, of man's free will. It's because of God's sovereignty. God knows everything. God's going to do this. And so he's going to elect some to be saved, and he's going to elect others or choose others to be damned. And that is not what Scripture says, because we know what Scripture says about who our God is, that he loved the world, that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33, 11 says, that he wants all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, that he would want all to repent. That's his will. And yet the truth still stands that some will not believe this. And so here's what we believe as, as our church. We say this way. We don't try to answer it because we believe that the Bible itself doesn't provide an answer to this question that's incomprehensible to human reason. So what do we do? We do affirm this, that God in his foreknowledge and what he's done in predestination saved us by grace and grace alone. Not by any human means, not by our action, not by our choice, but rather rest on something objective, something outside of, of us. That he would send Jesus to die for us and then give us the faith to believe that this is grace for us. That's what God did before the creation of the world. He did that for you. That's single predestination. But we also affirm that if people are damned, it's not God's fault. It's our own fault because we're born in sin. And in our humanity, in our rebellion, and in our unbelief, oh, how I long to gather you as, as, as chicks, Jesus says, but you would not, as a hen gathers chicks, but you would not, you would reject. So if people are damned, it's not God's fault. 
It's our own. And that's the paradox, that we can't put these two seemingly logical things together, but we believe. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. Just like the Bible says it's one God, but three persons. Well, how do you, how do you explain that? Well, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. Well, he came from a virgin. Well, there's an, a God that created the world, you know, and everything, the universe, and, and, and there's eternity. How do, you, how do you teach and how do you believe that? But, but what we do in this place is try very hard to say, get my human reason out of, out of the way, out of the equation. Let me hear the word of God and speak to me what it says. So the doctrine of predestination, it does bring uh, Christians comfort. It brings us joy. It's a teaching that expresses how much God loves you. How much does God love you? He loves you so much that before the creation of the world, he chose you. And he gave you faith and he gave you the Holy Spirit. And he gave you the gift of repentance. He gave you baptism. It's all gifts from him. Did you earn it? Did you deserve it? No. That's how much he loves you. You are predestined. Amen. So how does that impact our Christian life? Well, it should big time. But then here we go. We struggle again. And I think one of the hardest struggles for Christians is to believe that we really believe. Did you hear that? The hardest things, I think, for a, at least for in my life, and I'll tell you a little bit of my Christian journey in a minute, but the hardest struggle is that we, do I believe that I truly believe? Because then we have battles in our mind. We're saint and sinner at the same time. Do I really believe in Jesus if I just did this? Am I really predestined? How do I know? We're sinners and saints at the same time. Simul justus et peccator is the Latin, simultaneously justified and at the same time sinner. Because this old sinful self of mine, the, the one that's going to say after six weeks I'm going to play soccer, despite what my wife says and what other people say, you're a dummy, okay, Okay, maybe I am. Is it my God? Sometimes it probably is. Do I confess that? Absolutely. I mean, it's a struggle. It's a struggle that we're sinners, that at the same time we're saints. We're called and made holy. Tony, you're a baptized child of God. What's the song? How did it go? I'm his kid. Help me know it. Something like that. That I'm loved no matter what. So here, here's this uh, um, term I came across. Um, I'm hot. This term that, that I came across that uh, is uh, it's up on the screen. It's called spiritual turbulence. Now, I should know a little bit about turbulence as your outreach pastor. Because in the next two months, I'm going to either by land or by air travel over 10,000 miles. So beginning Thursday, I go down to Arkansas to marry my son, Brandon. Yes. You say, what? Yeah, I said marry my son, Brandon. Um, well, not marry him, but, you know, that's what the pastor thinks. He's going to get married to a girl, uh, Shelby, uh, on the 8th. Uh, then I come back and I go right to Haiti for our, uh, an outreach uh, mission trip with, with members of our church. Like 15 of us are going. Um, and then, then, then I'm going straight to St. Louis for a vacation. Then I'm coming back and we're going to take the UP family mission trip up by Marquette. And then right from there I get to hop on another plane and go to London, England uh, for my daughter who's going to try out for a professional English women's team, the Tottenham Hotspurs. And so we get to do that. And we, and we try, to, uh, um, try to be light and salt wherever we go. 
Um, but um, what's going to happen is on an airplane, there's no doubt that turbulence is going to happen. How many of you have flown before? I mean, how many of you get nervous when, when all of a sudden the plane starts to go, oh, I hope the pilot knows what he's doing. And the pilot and the co-pilot are just going, ah, yeah, we got some turbulence. And the flight attendants are going, yeah, just buckle your seatbelt, you know, because turbulence is just a natural thing. that It's, it's like driving in Michigan with potholes. <laughs> you know, we know there's going to be potholes. Some are going to be bigger. Some you just got to, you know. It's kind of like brings me back to my days in the Philippines where we're, we're, it's like Filipino roads. I mean, Michigan roads are a lot like that. But pilots don't freak out. Flight attendants don't freak out. Turbulence is a normal part of that airline flight, and it's not necessarily an indicator of danger. And when I thought about that, it's just like the ongoing struggle that we have with temptations that are common to all of us as saint and sinner. We have these accusations. We have this guilty conscience. We feel depressed. We have regret. We think Jesus is far away from us. And the things that we don't want to do, sometimes we end up doing. The things that we should do, we don't do. It's the struggle. It's the battle. It's turbulent. It's spiritual. And at times, we get sucked in. We we get some big bounces that, that, that happen in this turbulent thing. But God knows all of that. You're going to experience turbulence, and don't worry about it. In fact, it's an okay thing. Back to my Christian journey. When I was a young man, uh, I just graduated from college. I, I started to work for the airport authority in St. Louis, a young, what is it called, young up-and-coming professional. Is that a yuppie kind of thing? Right? So you're living this yuppie lifestyle, right? Still living at home, so I got all kind of spending money. Okay, and, and then I felt like I was leading a double life. I would be this professional from Monday through Friday. The time Friday comes around, I'm in the party scene. Sunday morning comes around, I'm at a church trying to figure out what's happening and feeling guilty, not feeling the very best, and I struggle and I doubt it. And I'm, Lord, if I know this is what your word says, and I just did that on the weekend, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? I doubted. I was like, I was sweating. Like I am now, I'm sweating in church. I'm sweating for a different reason, an ungodly reason. And yet here we are, and we have the spiritual struggles. And as I grew more into God's word, I realized this spiritual turbulence, it's an okay thing because God's people also had it. We're going to go to a story, Mark chapter 9, uh, go turn there with me, uh, verses 14 to 27, we're going to look at. And we're going to listen to a father who has this spiritual turbulence. He's doubting, he's distressed, he has fear. And we're going to understand a very simple prayer that he had that I think is a f- the most freeing prayer of all of Scripture. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 27. Are you there? When they came to the other disciples, they mean Jesus, James, Peter, and John off the Mount of Transfiguration. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by his spirit, has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. 
O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that Manny said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. That father came to Jesus with doubt. With distress. I mean, undoubtedly, he heard all the miraculous stories about Jesus. And I tell you, this impacts me a great deal because the doctor said my ribs are actually broken. And it happened Wednesday. And I'm up here and I'm without medicine. Oh, no, sorry. I did take two ibuprofen this morning. But oh my goodness, what Jesus can do. For us is amazing. And yeah, I come with doubts. I come with fear. And yet Jesus was gracious enough to this man. He was gracious enough to me to heal. And then this man says just about the most human thing any human being can say. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, help me overcome my unbelief. You know what that is? It's spiritual turbulence. Are there times in your life that it's easier to believe than others? Of course there are. Are there times when it's harder to believe? Yes, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being that you're firm in the faith right now, extra certain and strong, and 1 being you're faltering and you're on the brink of unbelief. How would you rank your believing at this moment? It's probably different for all of us. What was it like yesterday? A month ago. What do you think it's going to be like tomorrow or, or the next week? Right now, what, what do you think my believing is? What's going to happen tomorrow when something wrong goes, goes down? It's easy to believe when you go to a worship service, you hear the word of God, you praise God, you go into prayer, you're at a Bible study, you're with other Christians, oh, it's all good. You know, you're at a baptism, a wedding, all that stuff. That's easy to believe. And it's hard to believe when you get the call. Your husband has Alzheimer's. You have Parkinson's. You're fired from your job. You don't even know why. It's hard to believe. When your loved one's misdiagnosed and is going to die. It's hard to believe at those times. And we say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When I, when, I, when I read this years ago, it was such a freeing verse because it describes the battle of every Christian. It describes the war that's going on in our hearts and minds. It's a classic Christian paradox, just like 
predestination is. We believe and we disbelieve. We build on rock, the rock of Jesus and we build on sand. We have this high faith and then we have this low faith and there's a spiritual struggle. There's this tension in our life. But here's the key. A faith that is struggling is still faith. A faith that is struggling. It's a reality that we have a journey that's turbulent. And God knows that and God understands that. You see, to have faith in, in Jesus is to experience spiritual turbulence. It's experience this struggle, this war from our sinful self, the sinful self that doesn't appreciate being fought against, the sinful self that hates being, and I'll say this word, exercised. Not exercised, but exorcised. And I'll talk about that later on in, in August. Believe it or not, I'll be back to preach two other times this summer. But in August, we'll talk about what exorcism is. But only Jesus can cast out. That's what exorcism means. Cast out that sinful nature and fill us with something else. Here's the truth. Spiritual turbulence means that faith, which the Holy Spirit gave to me through the gospel and through baptism and to you, is alive. And what it's doing is beating down my sinful impulses. You see, here's the thing. A lack of spiritual turbulence it may mean that you're spiritually dead or you're foolishly confident in yourself or you just don't care about the things of God at all. Any one of those says you are on the brink of not having any faith of all, at all. But what spiritual turbulence does actually helps us. And so how do we, what, what, what does St. Paul talk about then? How do we work out our everyday Christian life? Well, first of all, from Mark, if you say to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. He says, I'll take that prayer. I'll take that simple prayer. I'll take your double-mindedness because you are, in fact, repenting of your sin. You're in church saying, I'm sorry, God. I believe, help my unbelief. And he answers with his grace and his mercy. And then the Bible says, I want you to know about this thing called predestination. Because in the Bible it says, I want you to know you that your election and is made sure. Your predestination is, is strong. Here's what I'm going to uh, read from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. I'll read it in just a minute. But he wants us to believe that if we would die right now, that we would be absolutely certain that heaven is for us. That's how important and how comforting being predestined is. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 says, I keep asking that the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may enlighten, may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, which he has predestined you, which he's elected you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God wants us to be confident in our predestination that we would be hopeful every time we hear about it. When we have spiritual turbulence, God says, don't focus on the turbulent part. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, for who the joy, the joy set before him. He died for your sins. In eternity, he chose you, and he made that happen 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. And when the devil tempts you and demons attack you and the sinful self in this world... Say, no, you're not. Just say right back to him. 
Get behind me, Satan. I'm a child of God. Amen? All right. I think I'm finished. He said it is finished. It's history. It's yours. Amen. And so to be able to give our uh, election uh, just a surety to be strong in it, he gives us the sacrament of Holy Communion. And when we have Holy Communion, we celebrate that together. He has promises that he's going to strengthen your faith. He's going to forgive your sins. As I prepare the table, I want you to bow your heads and your hearts. And I want you to just do this. When are the times in your life, just this past week, where you were double-minded? Where you said, Lord, I believe, but then I don't believe. Confess those to God right now. The Bible says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He takes that double-mindedness we have, and he says, you're covered. Sins forgiven in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All God's people say, amen.